Hey, all welcome to the Common Good Podcast. It's uh, Wednesday, the 18th of uh, January. And on Wednesdays, we like to talk about faith around here on the Common Good Podcast, always asking people to find a way to make the common good their life impulse, uh, also their political impulse. And uh, different days of the week, we talk with um, with uh, guests and with our hosts on different topics. Wednesdays, we often talk about faith. And in the Vote Common Good world, we know how important it is to talk about the impact and role that Christian nationalism plays in the United States. A, um, a movement that a lot of people don't um, readily know, or they know the phrase, but they don't really know what it is. They just know it's not a good thing uh, and they don't want to be a part of it. But the deep understanding of where it's come from, how it's it's birthed itself in our current situation is something that we think really matters to a lot of us and will matter in our political conversations matter in our religious lives and sort of in our civic uh, engagement as well. It's it's that prevalent. Um, and uh, Brad Onishi has written a book that has just come out that you need to uh, get your hands on preparing for war. Um, it's a critique of Christian nationalism. We should be clear by that title. He is not, this is not a how-to man. Well, I guess, I guess maybe a, a burgeoning Christian nationalist could read this as a how-to manual, but that's not how it's, um, that's not how it's, it's designed. So we're excited to talk to Brad today. I'm Doug Padgett from Minneapolis, uh, where it's, uh, Brad, we always talk about the weather a little bit, because it is one thing that we le least all experience together. And here in Minneapolis, it's gray and frozen again. We had a little thaw yesterday, you know, like 33 degrees, and now it's all, all icy again. So that's uh, the weather forecast from out the window here in Minneapolis. Uh, Dan, <laughs> uh, how are things looking there off the lake in West Michigan? Yeah, it's wet and cold and gray, but not quite cold enough to freeze, so just muddy and miserable. And Brad, you're you're out there in San Jose. How's it looking there in Northern California? Yeah, so we're, we're getting over a lot of rain. We had more rain in the last two weeks than uh, in, in two-week period than we have since Abraham Lincoln was president. Um, wow. And um, so I'm, uh, we're about 37, <laughs> 37 degrees this morning. Um, so I'm I, I'm coming to you from my storage basement with no heat, so I'm I probably have the warmest temperature of anyone on the call or on the video. But uh, I'm I'm in a room that's freezing, so I have my hat on, I have my my coat on, and here I am. So there you go. Well, and and good morning to Jim from there in Southern California, who's on the chat with us, and uh, Alex from Florida. Good to see uh, all of you uh, joining us today. Hey, Brad, you you not only are an author and a scholar and uh, and an influencer, but you um, are also a fellow podcaster and. Um, the um, Straight American White Jesus podcast. Uh, did I say that right? Did I, did I get all those? Straight all those? White American <laughs> Jesus, I think. Straight White American Jesus? Okay. Uh, an excellent podcast. And prolific, my friend. I mean, uh, we also do three or four podcasts a week. Not everyone does that. So uh, yep. it's good to be among somebody who, you know, has a hungry appetite for, uh, you know, talking into microphones. Your, your podcast is a great success, a big deal. Um, before we get into some of your own pedigree and what got you into this in this conversation, we talk about the details of Christian nationalism. Um, talk a little bit about that podcast, would you? Like, like how it's going and what you're up yeah. to and, and and what's happening with it. Yeah, just just like y'all. I mean, we we publish three times a week, um, full of hot air. It's got to go somewhere, and my wife doesn't, you know, always want to hear it. But um, no, we we really cover um, Christian nationalism, uh, the religious right, and everything related to that. Uh, we're two religion professors and who are ex-evangelical ministers. And so we have an inside view. We have a scholarly view. We bring on journalists. We bring on professors. We bring on researchers. We also bring on, um, you know, 
everyday folks who are who are concerned about these things. And uh, yeah, we, you know, we 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 have a, a great series going right now called "It's in the Code," where people. Um, send in uh, things that they've heard on church signs or in church, and we decode that for them. Uh, th- um, so, nice. you know, love love the sinner, hate the sin. Um, what does that mean? Oh, so, gosh, yeah. Uh, yeah, all that to say, uh, we love doing it and excited people listen. Talk about the origins a little bit in this name, Straight White American Jesus. I mean, you know, when two religion professors say, hey, you know what we ought to do? We ought to talk yeah. more, and we ought to do that in the form of a podcast. <laughs> yeah. not, not everyone who has sat through a religion class says to themselves, yeah, uh, professor, you ought to you, you ought to do that. Uh, you've yeah. you found the magic and you've you've made it happen. What? Uh, how did you get this title? How did you get yourselves? Um, you know, you and Dan in into this. 2018, we were deep in the Trump years and trying to figure out how we could contribute in some way. And we felt like we had a unique view. We have all this lived experience. We were in, I was in ministry for seven years. Um, he was a Southern Baptist minister, uh, went to Southern Baptist seminary. So we wanted to do something and we thought, you know, let's talk about it. Let's help decode things for people. And maybe it'll be helpful. Who knows if not, you and I can just talk yeah. and it'll be cathartic for us. <laughs> you know, from there, in terms of a name, it was like the question of the podcast. If you made me just give you tw- 10 seconds, I would say, why do so many Americans think Jesus is a straight white American guy um, who uh, looks like his, you know, ancestors were named Hans from Sweden um, rather than a Palestinian uh, <laughs> Jew who um, would be considered a f- person of color uh, today. So anyway, that's that's what we want to know. Why do so many people think Donald Trump uh, looks more like Jesus than um you know, any number of Americans I could name who are people of color, who are part of the LGBT community, who are immigrants, who are fill in the blank. So yeah, that's what we do. Um, I do, I will say, you talked about a training manual with my book. I do get emails from the Daily Wire seeing if they can advertise because they haven't done their homework. Oh, and that's um, amazing. <laughs> um, they, they, they think that we're all in on straight white American Jesus and they want to be part of it. <laughs> yeah, that is. They're like, finally, is, someone writing a book exactly. for us. <laughs> uh, from heart to pen, uh, tell yeah. the truth. But yeah, your book is, uh, it's focused on kind of two questions. How did we get here and where is this going? Uh, but it's not just an analytical account. It's a personal thing for you. Yeah, This is yeah. part of your story. Uh, I'm wondering if you could get us into this book by talking about your story, how you were radicalized and how you got out. Yeah. So I converted at 14. I was not a church kid growing up, you know, didn't do Sunday school and and that kind mm-hmm. of thing. So 14 invited uh, a very old tale by my eighth grade girlfriend to Wednesday night Bible study. And, you know, there was no way mom was letting me out of the house if I just said, Hey mom, I'm going to my girlfriend's house. But uh, she was definitely gonna let me go to church because I was getting in trouble and mouthing off and stuff. So uh, went mega church, 2,000 people or so in the church and met everyone you think I'd meet. Cool leaders, tattoos, guitars, um, Christian bands, punk bands, and all that business. I converted really, really hard at that point. Yeah. Uh, went from the guy who's, you know, hey, mom, take us to the movies and we're going to sneak behind the back and do teenage stuff to like, hey, mom, take us to the movies because we're going to stand in the front and uh, ask everybody who comes out if they've met Jesus. Um, was a full-time minister by 20. Uh, married to my high school sweetheart, true love waits, purity culture, did the whole thing uh, by 20 and uh, finishing up at Azusa Pacific out there in, in LA and headed to seminary. Um, so 
the book includes a lot of stories from me deciding I was going to do see with the poll every week, not just once a year, um, to um, my first kiss, and uh, at least with my my uh, high school sweetheart, and thinking that our sexual purity would renew the nation, all the way to every one of the the Revelation Bible studies I went to and pre-tribulation, mm. post-tribulation. Oh, yeah. um, the, the Euro is the sign of the, the mark of the beast and the European Union is the new world order and on and on and on. So you can tell I lived it. You can tell I was in it. And I wasn't just a believer. I was I was like a, 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 a really at the center, giving everything right. I had to the movement. All in, yeah. Yeah. Brad, what, what, what tradition was that, that you, of church you attended and, and then worked in? Yeah, so this is going to blow your your West Michigan and, and Minneapolis uh, reformed uh, soil minds right now. Um, so I, I converted in a Quaker church, and uh, down there in Orange County, where I'm from, Southern California, mm -hmm. there's a, a long, uh, surprising history of Quakers. Um, but they went from kind of the Quakers you'd imagine, social justice, egalitarianism, uh, abolition and peace, to uh, basically your kind of run-of-the-mill uh, evangelical megachurch types. So they, they're closer to Rick Warren than they are to William Penn. Mm -hmm. uh, Richard Nixon's church. So I grew up in Richard Nixon's church in his hometown. So Richard Nixon was famously a Quaker. Yeah. You know, peace uh, didn't really stick with him and uh, did with a yeah, lot. That, that part community. didn't stick. <laughs> and when you, when you were working in churches, did you also work in a Quaker context? So I, I uh, converted at a Quaker church and then was on staff by 18 at that church and then stayed on staff yeah. for seven years at that same church. That was my church. That was it. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, you know, the, your, your story is powerful. A lot of us have experienced similar things. And when someone goes through an awakening or a change or a growth or development or whatever phrase you use for sort of your life movement, um, it's easy to, to look back at those days only with regret and only with critique, right? But there was something else in that story that connected with that human element as a 14-year-old to a, you know, whatever it was, 21, 22, 23-year-old. What, what was that for you? Do you, yeah. do you have thoughts on that? Like, what, what was the thing that, that held you close or, you know, I don't know, warmed your heart or whatever, whatever language, you know? People use. I have two things. One is community, and I think that's pretty common. A lot of folks find in church a sense of belonging mm -hmm. and acceptance, and and a, a place where you're you're wanted, and that's really powerful. And it's hard to find for a lot of people outside of church. Let's just be honest. Uh, it's one of the hard things if you yep. leave the church or you have a change in your faith. The other thing was, um, you know, I was a pretty angsty kid, and I I was always thinking about the meaning of meaning of life and why are we here and. Um, what do you, what's the point of living a good life? Uh, what happens if you live a bad life? Uh, you know, what happens after you die? Uh, so on and so forth. Just a lot of existential kind of, uh, mm -hmm. pondering for a 14 year old, yeah. you know, and, uh, you know, kind of foreshadowed a life as a professor probably, but, um, and overthinker. But, uh, so right. <laughs> what I found in church was like all of these great answers to those existential questions. And in many cases without the long division, um, Here's what happens after you die. Here's how nice. you can uh, go to heaven. Here's why you were created. Here's uh, the point of human history. And, you know, you really take out all of the, like, kind of messy hard work there mm -hmm. and just get to the answers real quick. It's like you didn't have to do the equations or or memorize any of the, the hard stuff. You just got right to the answer. And that felt really good. And so 
you know, as somebody who was really kind of driven by his head, um, once I had accepted that that's how things work, that if you die without knowing Jesus, you go to hell, that if um, you don't know your savior, you're in big trouble. Then I just said, okay, I'm all in. Um, Mom, I don't want a Christmas present. I want no. you to give money for my Christmas present to people in Nepal who've never heard about Jesus. Um, I don't want a letterman's jacket. Uh, that costs money. I want mm -hmm. to buy tracts and hand them out at the beach. I mean, in my head, it was very clear, right? In a very sort of adolescent, but also very evangelical way. Like, yep. here's the answers. We should, like, why do, why do my elders at church have a 401k? What's wrong? Like, some of them have boats. Like, what's yep. wrong with you? Jesus is coming soon. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Are you like a coward or like a hypocrite? Which one is it? You know, and people don't, people like 40 year old men don't like it when 15 year old kids ask them that, but you know, that's the kind of guy I was like, <laughs> Jesus is going to come soon. Yeah. Why do you have a cabin? Sell the cabin. Let's go tell people about Jesus. And I realized mm -hmm, in my mm -hmm, early twenties, mm -hmm. most folks were, were just not wanting to live that way. And it kind of helped me, you know, push me, push me to the fringes of the community in some sense. Is is there a particular day in your early twenties that you remember? Was there a, a time or a moment that you've sort of retold yourself over and over into its own, you know, its own reality that you're like, here's when it happened? There was a bunch of moments. Uh, one of them though was John Kerry and, and George W. Bush, and I had really determined to vote for John Kerry and um, told folks mm. at church about it, and they were like, "Look, you know, that's that's great if John Kerry wants to help folks who are underprivileged economically, or maybe." put more money into education, but you're voting for a murderer and he's, he's going to help with the murder of millions and millions of babies. And I got into the booth to, to vote and I was just haunted. Like, can I, I know that John Kerry's the better candidate, but I don't want to vote for the murder of millions of babies. And when I left there, it really set me on a path of like life's most fundamental questions. I mean, talking about the common good, the common good and the human condition cannot be just as simple as like, either or, right. uh, this or that. W these questions are the most important ones we have as humans, and we're just like, this or that, one or the other, and I'm not going to do that, theologically, philosophically, so I'm going to go find the books and the teachers and the theologians and the mm. historians and really try to figure out a more nuanced and responsible approach to like life's most pressing issues. And and that that that's I mean there were many moments but that's one that always sticks out for me. Yeah, yeah. totally. Can I just drill down on this one cuz this, this is what fascinates me about a lot of us are these stories. You're driving home, <clears throat> you're thinking these things. You must have been doing the long division in your own mind about what that's going to mean, who you could talk to, who you couldn't talk to. You'd been married uh, at this point, you know, it sounds like for a while. Did you tell your wife right away? Uh, did you talk to people in your job situation? Did you have to keep that stuff quiet? Like, how did you manage uh, that? And I'm thinking about this specifically for a lot of people who are in this space right now, and they're like, oh my gosh, like, I don't even want people to know I'm listening to this podcast, yeah. let yeah. alone, you know, that I'm thinking these thoughts myself. No, I was in that position. So I would, on my days off, being the, the nerd that I am, I, Thursday was my pastor's day off, and my wife was a school teacher, so she didn't have any time off on that day. So I, I would go to the coffee shop with like, you know, 28 books, um, learning the Greek in seminary and, you know, all the, and so that was one outlet for me was just finding voices and, and they were not, um, they were not far afield, right? They, they, it wasn't like, well, you know, let's pick up Karl Marx. Uh, you know what I mean? It wasn't, it wasn't like I had, <laughs> I wasn't reading Das Kapital in German or anything. It was, you know, it was theologians. It was people who had some of the similar training that I did and background. Mm -hmm. So I think that's one. I think two, 
um, I was able to find uh, people who knew the long division was necessary, whether that was in church or seminary, and give me a sympathetic ear where I could actually yeah. um, trust them. So I think that's really important. Um, and I also think, you know, back then, and this was 2004, 2005, I went to an emerging church conference in San Diego, California, and, uh, you know, was was going to see some of the folks who had really given me hope that Christianity could be more about things like justice and things like uh, affirmation rather than simple damnation. And so getting to see that there were other folks who came not from totally like uh, other contexts, you know, church contexts that were so foreign to me, whether it was like Episcopalians or or Orthodox, like I, I had never experienced, I had no experience with that. But seeing folks come from Baptist traditions or Reformed traditions yeah. that were like, hey, we're asking the same questions and trying to figure this out. And that helps so much. And so I know these days, whether it's a conference or a podcast, whether mm -hmm. it's a YouTube channel, whether it's books, there's a lot of ways people can do this. I know how excruciating it is to be someone admit. I mean, there were times, I'm not going to lie to y'all. There were moments I'd stand in front of that church, you know, thousands of people leading, leading the, the prayer. And I wasn't sure I believed in God. And, yeah. you know, and that's just, I mean, that's just, a really traumatic place to be, but you know, I know folks are there and it's, it's not easy. So, and your uh, livelihood is tied up with it. Taking yeah. care of your family is on the line. Yeah. There's, there's a lot to factor in. Do, do you, as you think about what you do now, you know, you're doing three podcasts a week, you're uh, producing, looking sound like you're going to be producing some video content from your, at least some, some of the comments you've made in the podcast. Uh, you're writing books, you're teaching, are you? Do you see yourself continuing in that same line? Like now, there's people for whom you are this one that they're going to hear, and you're going to help them say that it's okay to do the math. Like you can, you can keep figuring this out. Is is are, do you see it in that sort of contiguous way? Like it's it's you're still in the same pro, you're you're in the same project in a little different sort of location to these questions. I do. You know, I was, I went down and gave a, a couple of talks down in Southern California last weekend. And, and one of them was in Orange County as the first time I, I spoke at a United Methodist church in Orange County. It's first time I'd spoken publicly in Orange County since 2005. First time wow. I'd spoken in a church, uh, since 2005, at wow. least in Orange County. And the last thing that my head pastor told me after seven years in ministry, uh, putting all through all three of his kids uh, through the youth group, taking care of them, being their camp counselor. The last thing he told me on the Sunday morning I left was, "Don't go crazy liberal on us, so you can come back and visit someday." Um, and <laughs> you know, that's a nice thing to say to somebody after uh, seven years of service. And going back to Orange County, I can tell you in the in the audience were so many of my youth group kids. Wow. Um, mm -hmm. those days. And, and be, because they're like, Hey, I found your podcast. I'm in the exact same spot. When you left, our parents called you crazy. They said you'd lost it. They said you lost your faith. And guess yeah. what? We're on the same journey. And now you're like our youth pastor again, even though we're in this radically totally. different like faith place. And so I completely do it. You know, I've always, um, I've always seen, I, I stayed in the religion game. I, I never left it because to me, this is where the most fundamental questions, uh, are asked, it's also the place where people struggle the most. And so I always, I always want to see it as the mm -hmm. same project. Always. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thanks. I, I really believe that, you know, biography is mission for a lot of us. Like if you ask why we're doing something somewhere, gets back in there. What you do well in your podcast, I'm sure you do in the book, 
is you put human stories to this and you recognize that it's people who are doing these things. We don't end up with Christian nationalism, which we'll spend some time talking about now. We don't end up with that by force of nature or just happenstance. It's choices of individual people doing certain things in certain contexts that are producing this. Like people's DNA and fingerprints are all over these crime scenes. So we know who did it. These yeah. it's not a who done it oftentimes in in <laughs> fate. Like we know who did it. Uh, why they did it or how it got there is really important. And so often in religion, especially, there can be this tendency to want to dehumanize it and make it seem like it's about ideas or philosophies, and it is, but they're always carried by someone, you know? Uh, it's one of the things I noticed early on in Christianity that a lot of the Christian traditions are named for someone. Quakerism, uh, interestingly, isn't it? It's named for a, you know, sort of, I guess, a derogatory yeah. critique of, a, of an yeah. action or behavior. But, you know, Lutherans and Calvinists and, you know, um, uh, Wesleyans and like, it, it recognizes that, hey, someone had a notion, someone had an idea, you know, um, and, and, and it's rooted there. And that's, that's super important, I think, for people to recognize for their own agency about, about all these things. And I'll, I'll say that that's a, um, something I've learned over time because I think, you know, what I learned early on was that my, my head, Jesus, I accepted Jesus into my heart, but he like went to my brain. He kind of migrated up north. <laughs> and I think when I got into theology and philosophy at first, it was it was really nice to intellectualize things. And part of, I'll be honest, what I learned in evangelicalism was to 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 do anything I could to get away from my body because my body mm -hmm. was something I was always at war with. Mm -hmm. And what I recognize now, and I, I appreciate you observing there, is just that um, so much of that the most important aspects of the human condition are just about embodiment, identity, narrative. It's not about a coherent theological system. It's not about a co like cohering my soteriology with my doctrine of creation. Like most people just are not going to do that, you know? And so it's not that I'm trying to say that if you're doing that, that you're there's somehow that's not valuable or something. I'm just saying, if we're going to reach into people's lives and try and provide something constructive, we got to realize that most of this is about bodies and, and identities yeah. and cultures and stories. And that's, those are the wow. things that are really important. Yeah. Brad, I'm curious, the same factory, the same culture that produced true believers like yourself that wanted to give up their Christmas presents to, you know, feed the <laughs> poor also has produced, people that will storm the Capitol on January 6th. How yeah. does that happen? And how, like, mm -hmm. are you an outlier that you you were a true believer and didn't go that route? Or is this, uh, you know, part of the factory mechanisms? Yeah. I, so I think there's two things. One is, you know, my just going back to 16-year-old me, had no desire to feed the poor because I was told that feeding the poor would not do much because we needed to, <laughs> Um, you know, then they would just be hungry again. We needed to feed hungry souls. That was what I had learned, yeah. right? Okay. And I think, I think to answer your question, there's a chance that if I had been born later, I would have been at J6 because when I converted it at, as a teenager, I just absorbed like a sponge, everything I could get my hands on in church. And if I had gone to a church, it, you know, that was full of QAnon and the big lie mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and, um, uh, you know, demonizing my political enemies, I can see a man in my church saying, hey, I bought you a plane ticket. We're going to D.C. next week. 
um, you know, skip college, let's go. And I think, I think there's part of me that would have said, yeah, I, I agree. If I want to be a patriot and right. a, a godly man, I need to get on the plane. The way that I was an outlier, and I think this is actually really important um, when it comes to Christian nationalism, is my interest was always in the kingdom of God. And I'm not saying that to to brag. What I'm trying to say is, is like in my brain, what made sense was not America. What made sense was yeah. if you die without Jesus, you're condemned. And so our lives should just be, we're like in a, an emergency situation. You know what I mean? I mean, I would go to school. I mean, I'm not lying to y'all. I went to my public school in Southern California and I would pass out tracts at lunch. Sometimes I would, I would like, you know, mm -hmm. lead a Bible study. Here's my point is what I realized later in my life is that there were true believers in where I came from, but they were true believers in the marriage of the gospel and the American flag. Mm. And their interest was in an American identity and a, and a Christian Americanism that really sees the flag and the cross as, as spouses. And so I think what partially led me out was actually taking the Sermon on the Mount seriously and taking some of the other things seriously and saying, I don't understand how the kingdom of God can be about America. It doesn't, it, it just doesn't, it never, it does not click for me. And it, the more I ask questions, the more you all think I'm a troublemaker. I'm just trying to understand why we're always talking about the United States. Mm -hmm. So the people from my hometown, like I went home, home this weekend and I saw it firsthand, you know, my friends and, and, cohorts are now in their 40s and their interest is christianity draped in the flag not the world draped in the cross and mm. so um that to me is why i ended up out of the movement and and deconstructing in the way i did and it's also why i think where i came from continues to be a hotbed for christian Ash i mean this is this you know you talked about the soil and who it's produced the soil of orange county produced Barry Goldwater is a Republican candidate for president. It's where we, I mean, I was born two miles from Richard Nixon was born. It was Ronald Reagan's spiritual home. The airport's named after John Wayne. So we're pretty good at this. <laughs> you know what I mean? Good line. That's a great line. Hey, uh, a lot of us have recognized the long-term uh, conditions that have produced Christian nationalism, this belief that the United States is uniquely existing in the world to accomplish the agenda of God and that the collection uh, that the combination of the church with the government to bring about God's agenda for the world is the point okay so that's Christian nationalism one definition or one one pass around the tree a lot of us have recognized the roots of this have been around for a long time it it actually goes you know these were issues that were uh, dealt with in the Gospels. These are issues that are dealt with in the Jewish text. Like, what do you do with your society? And what do you do with your call of God? And how do you make sure that they don't become overly wedded together? You could hear Jesus saying, like, give to Caesar what is Caesar and to God what is God. So you can, right, these are impulses. These are, these are struggles that are, that are part of the human endeavor with religion and, and culture. So we can recognize that you do a great job of it in your podcast. And I know in the, in the book, you also paint a history of how we got here. How did conservative right-wing Christianity, how was it born and how was it nurtured in the United States? And I think we're in a moment and some of the recent episodes in your podcast have really tapped into this, that in the last 15 years, there's been a new variant of this. And the power that we're seeing in Christian nationalism now, especially as it's wrapped itself around Trumpism and the 
election denialism and January 6th violence and a number of the things we see, shooters and, and all the rest. This is, this is a new variant that is particularly deadly and particularly mm -hmm. identifiable. Uh, okay, that's, th that, that's my analysis. And I think it comes out of a particular charismatic movement. Um, you all document it really well in, in your work and you name names, which I think are really important. I mean, sort of walk through a chronology and, and, you know, up until just two years ago, video footage and audio footage of what, what people were doing and saying. Can you say a little bit about not just the long history of white Christian nationalism struggle in the United States, but what's been going on you know, in the in the period of time when many people uh, when many people's cars were made or refrigerator was made, right? Like recent yeah. history, what's been going on that has produced this? Or might even go so far as to say, you know, the the last time you bought ketchup, these people started an <laughs> idea, and that ketchup bottle isn't empty yet. And like yeah. these are two year old ideas, if you know our ketchup in our house. <laughs> do, you see, do you see what I'm getting yeah, at? Like, can you talk about the 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 nowism of what's happening and not just the historic argument where we have to bring up whether Thomas Jefferson meant separation of church and state yeah. as a religious thing. You know what I'm getting at? So yeah. can you yeah. just talk, talk a bit about that? Let's go back. Uh, this Hopefully this isn't too far back for what you're asking, but you know, I, I remember very clearly when George W. Bush ran for president and the talk in my church was really, hey, this will be the first time in a long time we've had a real Christian president. Uh, Bill Clinton was out here doing whatever Bill Clinton was doing. And, you know, Papa Bush was an sort of Episcopalian rich guy goes to church, but that's not a, that's not a true believer in Jesus. Um, you know, Reagan, he, he, he helped evangelicals, but ultimately disappointed people, blah, blah, blah. George W. Bush, however, I don't think ever scratched the itch for getting the country back to where a lot of white Christians wanted it. Um, mm -hmm. Yes. Jesus turned his life around. Yes. He was no longer, you know, struggling with alcoholism. Yes. He, he talked about the Bible. But a lot of things in America that felt wrong were still there. There were still so many people of color. There were still a lot of people leaving church. There were still a lot of immigrants and LGBT folks on the TV and on the movies and running for office. And then Barack Obama. And it's like Barack Obama was the worst fear. I mean, the guy is mixed race. He has a black wife. He has black children. He has a dad who's Muslim, a dad who's an immigrant. He's you know, a lot of time in Hawaii, my family's from Hawaii. A lot of people just don't even consider Hawaii part of the United States. And so, and he's president and like same-sex nice. marriage is allowed now, yep. right? So I think by the time we get to 2016, the idea that George W. Bush would get up there and talk about the Bible and uh, and talk about Jesus wasn't going to cut it. it. It was no longer a let's pray for the country for renewal and revival. It was, we need to dominate the country. Because the country is not going back the way that it should be through the methods we tried with George W. Bush. And so I don't want Mike Huckabee. I don't want Marco Rubio. I don't want Mike Pence. I want a brutalizer. I want a bully. And I just mm -hmm. want someone to make the people I think need to hurt. I want them to get hurt so that mm -hmm. they realize they should stop doing what they're doing. And so I think we end up with a Trump presidency that is in many ways uh, backed by so many different types of of Christian people and particularly white Christian people, that brings us into uh, the Pentecostal uh, traditions you've mentioned and really the growth of the New Apostolic Reformation. And what I would really point out with all of that, the most important part is the spiritual warfare language. Because totally. the spiritual warfare language gives you the discourse that says, 
we're not here to pray for our country. We're here to control our country. We're here as an army of God facing an enemy army, and mm -hmm. we're going to win. We're going to control yeah. every sector of society, arts and culture and business and economy and, 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 and politics. We don't want to be uh, in the room. We want to decide who gets to be in the room. Okay. Yeah. And even if you're not part of one of those traditions, even if you don't go to a church with, with New Apostolic Reformation apostles, or you're not, you know, part of a, a, a charismatic tradition that, it, that, uh, you know, has flags and speaking in tongues, et cetera. To me, the spiritual discourse language travels, uh, yep. the spiritual warfare discourse travels. It can travel to the reform space. It can travel, um, to the Baptist space. It can travel to the non-denominational megachurch space. So I think, the spiritual warfare language feels like it's that's the right language for the era we're in mm -hmm. of wanting to dominate and control. And it all fits really nicely together. And so Donald Trump's spiritual advisor is Paula White Kane, and she comes from that tradition. She invites all those people in. And all of a sudden, it's no longer Jerry Falwell and some Southern Baptists in three three P suits in the White House. Uh, it's it's mm -hmm. folks who they would have never considered actual like serious people in Paula White Kane and her uh, her charismatic cohorts, and we have a different era, and we have, a, and this is what I mean about coming into church today. If I came into church today, I think the language I would would have heard was, "We got to get our swords bloody and go dominate God's enemies." Mm -hmm. and, as, and look, as, I think people we yeah. we should bring up that um, you are not paraphrasing for the point of extremism. You, these comments you're making are a more tame version than what you can hear if people listen to your podcast episode for, on the on the charismatic revival where they play footage uh, audio footage of preachers in churches leading up to January 6th saying things that uh, when when I heard it I was physically uh, 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 impacted by how violent this spiritual warfare language is and the sword and cutting off the head like it was something and your co-host on the podcast makes a great point because he studies um uh muslim extremism and he's like look if this had been going on in the muslim communities the fbi would be in those communities in a minute if it was talking about these kinds of things so i think it's important for people to recognize that this new apostolic reformation and there's some very, you know, some people from the world that I came from know John Wimber, and they're like, that John Wimber guy was the root of the insurrection narratives and the, the guys inside the Senate chamber calling for the hanging of Mike Pence. Like, how in the world do you get from here to there? And it's not a, it's not filling in the blanks conspiracy theory. You all do a great job of chronicling. You know, this is just a handoff. It's just, <laughs> they describe it themselves. Yeah, they will tell you how the they open. got here. Yeah, it's again, it's not a whodunit on this on, on this case. That, and I don't want yeah. to pick on the Pentecostal charismatic movement, but I think it's crucial for people who aren't in that world to recognize what you're saying, that those impulses that are carried first often in music and then often in some other kind of uh, listening and often built in communities that are not, that don't meet in person, that your average church is not doing the things that these apostolic reformation movements are doing. They're often doing this stuff and people connect to it outside of their local, of their local yep. situation online and with, you know, other, and look, they would have done it with books and videotapes and other times. It's not about the technology. The technology is not the villain here. I'm not saying that at all, but that there's that, that something is afoot and it's right now. 
In, in other words, there is a particular spiritual movement afoot. And I think your podcast, and I'm sure your book, is really timely in that sense. So if people are like, oh, I don't want to do a big history thing, you know, and there's a, a, a you know, religion professor talking about the history of these things, like, okay, uh, I'm sort of, you know, I'm a here and now kind of person. The, your, your work in this book and, and the podcast is very, you know, like, hey, two weeks ago, three weeks ago, or a day ago, this is what was going on. Oh, yeah. I mean, we, you know, and again, I, I, I think the point you made is one I want to reiterate, which is, this is not religion professors with some some theories. They read, uh, you know, some highfalutin philosophers and came. This is if you listen to our show, we play you the clips of the yes. the, the apostles and the pastors saying these stuff. And then the, the other thing I'd like to mention is, do not consider the New Apostolic Reformation and its sort of affiliate uh, movements as fringe. Th this, you know, there's a lot been written about the the shrinking of Christianity in the United States. This is the one sector of american christianity that is wow. growing okay wow, and so wow, wow, do, wow, do, wow. do 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 not consider this like oh yeah they're they're not the real kind of power players they uh, they have the the millions of followers they have a lot of money and they have the technological apparatus and i'll tell you another thing that's really helpful is it's not a denominational movement so you don't need right. committees and uh denominations to approve anything here so it moves fast. Like, you know, I love my Methodist friends, but, you know, they have a committee for their, for their committee. And uh, they're probably in committee right now if I call them. And I, I, I'm just, I'm, I'm being silly, but that's not true in this world. You can move on a dime. And that really helps mobilize. So anyway, I, I think all that's really important. Yeah, yeah it's, it's some, hey, talk about this decision in the, in the podcast to play the audio. Uh, I mean, first of all, it's a lot of work uh, to get it and to get it all together. So, uh, you know, we recognize that and and see that for what it is. But it's also uh, th there's a there's a perspective that you're trying to to drive home. There's a thing you're doing there. Maybe you do it in the in the book as well. I apologize for not having read the book already. Why do you want to put it in in first person? Like a, a lot of it is the audio of people saying these things. And then small amounts of commentary about it. And most often people do the opposite, a quick sound bite, and then a long description about here's what they're really saying. And you all seem to do the opposite of that, right? You do this, no, fully listen to it. And it goes on and on and on and on and on yeah. uh, appropriately. And then you make, make comment about it. Can you say something about that style or that approach and, and why you do it that way? So the, the credit goes to Matt Taylor uh, of the Institute for Catholic, Jewish, and Islamic Studies in Baltimore. He's my co-host on this. He did all that work. He's the one that found all that, all those clips. So I want to give him all the credit wow. there. The reason that we did it that way is twofold. Um, you know, we're trained as scholars, and we try really hard to not be dusty, boring uh, professors. And and so we're, we're not trying to, to bore anybody with, uh, you know, uh, details of... of uh, Emil Durkheim's, uh, you know, text from 1906 and blah, blah, blah. No one's doing that. Okay. However, we feel a responsibility not to, um, talk or analyze without receipts and, and evidence. Mm -hmm. So we want to make sure, Hey, if you want to go ahead and criticize us, you want to yell at us, you want to get on Twitter and yell at me. That's you, you go ahead. He, it's them saying it, not me. Right. It's all, <laughs> it's them. Okay. That's, That's number one. Number two, I think we all are used to reading things secondhand, like, hey, here's what Ted Cruz said yesterday, or here's what Joe Biden mm -hmm. said yesterday mm -hmm. on Twitter or on the news or, or somewhere online. As you said, Doug, 
when you hear it, it physically affects you because it's their voice, it's their cadence, and it's them. It's not like you reading it on a page. It's like, holy moly, this guy said this in front of 10,000 people. This guy broadcast this the morning of January 6th to 250,000 people, and he used that language of swords and violence. Um, that hits you. And, and I've had a lot of, I'm not going to lie, I've had people who've come out of those traditions say, hey, I love your work, and I love this podcast you did. I can't, I can't listen because I, I had 20 years of that. And I just, yep. if you ever have a version without the sound clips, I'll listen. But for everybody else, I think you need to hear it. I think it, I mean, come on, when you, when it, when you hear it with your own ears, you get your stomach turns, right? Your, your teeth clench, your, your, you, you, you ball up your fist. Like, I can't believe what I'm hearing. And I think that kind of physical reaction actually is, is kind of the point of putting all that in there. Yeah. Hey, there's this idea that uh, winners write history. <laughs> uh, but that's not always the case. And in your book, you get into this uh, kind of the parallels between the lost cause of the Confederacy and the rewriting of the January 6th myth. And you call it uh, myth-making in real time. I'm wondering if you could talk about those parallels and how the people that lost, they lost the election, they failed to overturn the results of the election. They're still rewriting the narrative as we speak. Can you yeah. talk a bit about that? Yeah, it's just a great question. I think, you know, myth is a great way for those who didn't win to write the history, right? And so uh, when it comes to the Civil War, the South uh, and, and certain people in the Confederacy really come up with this idea that um, the South was attacked by the North for land and money, not about slavery. Uh, and in fact, Christ was on the side of the mm -hmm. Confederacy and uh, was there, uh, you know, blessing them as they fought valiantly against a, a, a sort of empire from the north. There's the idea that just like Christ, uh, there might seem to be a defeat, but the crucified Confederacy will rise again, just as Jesus did. And so you can see that that sort of like um, starts to take root. And there's this idea that the Confederacy might have lost the battle, but it was going to win the war eventually. And it was going to win the war not just because it wanted power, but because it was on the right side of the divine. It was the moral cause. It was the cause of family. It was the cause of, of, uh, of uh, homeland. It was the cause of uh, patriotism and, and values. It was the cause of Christ. And so that mythology takes root. And I, I won't do all the history here, but in the book, I really show how that kind of thinking gives us Jim Crow. That kind of thinking gives us the KKK of the 1920s. Mm -hmm. That kind of thinking gives us the cowboy of the American West and John Wayne, as I mentioned. Um, mm. what, we, what we have after the 2020 election is myth-making in real time in the sense that the big lie takes root. And it becomes told and retold so many times that it becomes this story that emblematizes how many uh, people, including many white Christians, feel as if their country has been stolen from them. You stole the whole country, and yeah, you stole this yeah. election. And we're not going to, this is the last straw. We will not stand for that anymore. And so we're going to live in a reality that says uh, our country has been stolen, our election has been stolen. And if we live in that reality, A, it gives us a cause for vengeance. It makes January 6th the beginning and not an end. It's something that you look back on as the sort of uh, first first battle in a long yeah. war to, to get your country back. It also justifies extreme action because you see yourself as part of something that is legitimate, 
is uh, uh, coming from a divine authority and something that is a story that goes beyond you and you have to give everything you have to uh, to live out. And so one of the things I point out in the book is that this this myth of this of the of the big lie now has rituals. Uh, right when you go to a rally, that's a ritual where you're living out oh. uh, one of the roles of the story. It has it has it has martyrs. Ashley Babbitt is a martyr in the story. She's seen as a hero who gave her life. It has relics. Uh, when Glenn Youngkin ran for uh, governor of Virginia, there was a rally, and he actually didn't attend. But uh, people like uh, the former president did, uh, and they said the pledge of pledge of allegiance before the rally and the American flag they used was one that was carried by rioters at J six. Right. Wow. So the American flag in that case is not just the American flag, is it? It's a, it's a relic of J six as a commemoration. And so now the story has ways you can participate in it. You can revere the martyr. You can uh, touch the relic and you can live out the ritual and, it's no longer something that is contested for millions of people. It's just a lived reality. What I, you know, in the book, wow. I, I give statistics of how so many more people believe the big lie now than believed it on January 6th across the United States. That shows you how it's really, grown. oh my gosh. Yeah. yeah. You know, it's this reality that there are facts always in the world and information and data. That's not what's powerful to human beings. What's powerful is the story that's made from those facts in that information and that data. That, that that there's a better story than just the information. Yeah. One of the things that we struggle with in our society, one of the things that not conservative expressions of Christianity struggle with, whether that be progressive expressions or other, other varieties, but not the conservative right-wing side, is that often there's... An, um, there's not an emphasis on storytelling with the facts and the information. That there's no narrative created from those from those facts. And in the in the lack of that, the narrative is going to win, mm -hmm. uh, right? Human beings in our consciousness and our brains are just more aligned to remember facts and information and data when it's put together in a story. And we're missing a story, especially a story of critique of some of these things, right? A lot of us. Uh, feel like the best thing we can do is just say like I have no idea who these people are like what they're up to it's just it's just wacky right uh, I yep. can't and then on the other side it's like let me tell you a story that's going to connect this all the way back to wherever you want to go back to but ultimately back to the heart mind and action of God and then from there forward there's a story you can find yourself in do yeah. you think that's an accurate description of a situation that we have that some of us are so enamored with the facts and the data and the information we think they should speak for themselves and other people are busy trying to craft that into a narrative that is uh, more understandable and, and uh, invitational? I, I do, and I think it's, it's tempting. It's tempting to get in there on Facebook or at a holiday dinner or uh, when you see your cousins at the barbecue and just say, how can you believe that? Uh, here is my evidence about vaccines or my evidence about voter fraud, my evidence about why QAnon doesn't make sense. And uh, rarely does that lead right to changed hearts and minds. Uh, I, I do think that we have to pay attention to affect and emotion. You know, people are like, how do I talk to my cousin in that situation? And I'd say, it's going to be really tempting as they spout off things that you know are false to jump in and say, wrong, wrong, idiotic. Oh my Lord, that is the dumbest thing I've heard today. The better response is, all right, so you're telling me about this. What about that uh, makes you angry? What about that yeah. makes you uh, 
frustrated? Like, nice. why are you so resentful with that group of people? And what what is fueling that grievance or that anxiety? I'm raising kids. You are too. Like, what makes you scared for them? And if you can get there, then maybe you're two human beings talking and they don't see you as that crazy uh, liberal, you know, some, something or godless heathen or, or whatever they've been told you are. They just all of a sudden you're a human who's scared and worried and um, and anxious and and trying to be hopeful for their kids. And that can make a difference. And in terms of story, I think that we can tell a story. We just often miss the opportunity that, yeah. you know, Martin Luther King Jr., uh, we just celebrated his, his, his holiday and birthday. And, you know, the, the line that you hear so often is the arc of the universe bends towards justice. And it's like history is, is made. And it's not, nice. uh, it's, it's not a given, it's not destiny. So listen, we have a chance in this country to be a more perfect union. We have a chance to live up to our creed for the first time. We have a chance to extend liberty and equality and independence to all people of all ethnicities and all religious traditions or non-religious traditions. And we can walk together on a path that goes towards justice. We mm -hmm. can link arms and say, that's where we're headed. And I'm not sure if we're gonna get there, but we're gonna try like hell to do it. And if you are somebody who believes in that, if you're somebody who believes that our, our creed is worth living up to and fighting for, then walk with me and let's go. Mm -hmm. yeah. And we can have a story here, but so often we're, we're, we're really bad at telling it and we're really bad at realizing that emotion is, and identity are just as big a part of it as anything else. Wow, that's so, that's so powerful. Um, and there's a difference between telling stories and telling a story. Mm -hmm. A lot of us have been trained in st in telling stories, finding anecdotes, telling a story, as opposed to creating a narrative that people find themselves in. Mm -hmm. That's, that's a piece, right. That's a piece that the Christian nationalist movement does well. If you find yourself in that world, there is a full narrative that mm -hmm. is created for you about what we're up to. What's going on? In fact, a lot of us who've you know been involved in Christianities that we've now wanted to leave a bit behind recognize that pretty deeply. Like, wow, back then there was a story that I had and I, I knew where I fit in it and what I should be doing to be a part of that. Yep. And and look, that, that doesn't serve a, a growing human being very well. A lot of ambiguity and stuff is an important part of spiritual growth. But then we need to narrate a story for like, what are we up to as human beings? Because just moving into, you know, sort of meaningless, meaningless, all of this is just a series of, of actions might be true. I don't know. Mm -hmm. I can critique that. I just know it doesn't really motivate your average person to, you know, do a thing a week from Tuesday. And well, if we want people it, to do a thing a week from Tuesday, we should probably change that. We should. And we should also... We also have to relearn what it means to live a story. You know, uh, I have a friend named Zach who uh, says he's uh, recovering from certainty. And, nice. you know, um, like he was a certainty addict. And I think part of what we have to help those who are leaving those Christianities realize is if the story you're living out isn't one where you know every step and exactly where it goes, it doesn't mean it's a bad story. It means it's, yeah, it right. might actually be a really exciting and charming and beautiful story, but you got to be willing to walk it. And it's, it's hella scary, but that's faith, right? I mean, I don't know. Certainty isn't faith. And if I want to be a person of faith, that's what I'm going to do, you know? Yeah. We, we, we also have this little notion. I'd love to run by. I know we just have a minute or so left here, but uh, we've come to believe around the Vote Common Good world that there's, 
a story in the United States that involves three characters, and this primary story is not serving us well, and we need to swap it for another. The primary story is that there's three characters, heroes, villains, and victims. And you'll often need to find your place in a story where you're either the hero or the victim, and someone else is the villain. And that drives a whole lot of what we do. And even when you confront someone or you are confronted with your own behavior that would be seen as villainous, we are incredibly prepared to turn that somehow into how we're the, how we're the, the hero or the victim, right? Like, well, the only reason that happened is because of this other thing that someone else caused, so my bad behavior is not, not villainous. But the other person, no matter how good they are, are still at a root you sort of told that story well you might want to vote for that guy because he's going to help the poor but he's also a baby like that kind yep. of thing right yep. that, and i think there needs to be another story which is the human sojourn story that we're we're walking this this life together and our with our pain and our our wickedness and all that together do, do you think that's that's true and do you see that that framework of hero villain victim playing out in the christian nationalism story as one of the windows by which we can understand that christian nationalism as it plays out yeah, and I think one of the things that think people should understand about white Christian nationalism is that white Christian nationalists play the hero and the victim at the same time. Mm -hmm. And that's the genius of the story. They are the founders of the country, and they're the victims of the country, as Lauren Kirby says in, in uh, her book. And so um, they have really created a narrative that is just nimble and agile and powerful, yep. because in one moment, I'm the hero. And you better get out of my way, and I'm right. And then, and if you critique me, it's it's not criticism; it's persecution. And I and that is where I'm going to go automatically because I founded the country. So if you do something to get in my way, it's persecution; it's not cr criticism or or anything uh, constructive. Uh, Albert Camus has this this book called The Plague, and it's really fun to read it. Uh, fun is the wrong word. It's really apt, <laughs> uh, apt to read it. You know, after living through a pandemic, because it's a book about a pandemic. And there are all of these victims in the book. There's all these attempted heroes in the book. But there's this great character who's just sort of a civil servant, um, so, somebody who who just works tirelessly behind the scenes throughout the pandemic to help people in little ways every day, and not in, a, in, in front of the camera, not getting the credit. And they just try to like do everything they can to be a human. And the, the character's last name is Le Grand, which you know, in French means the great. And I think for me, what I've always thought is like, you don't have to be the main character. You don't have to be the victim. You don't have to be um, anything else at all times. You can just be a human being who every day struggles to deal with the condition of being human, which is a which is one it's it's a mortal condition you you can't really get rid of. And so, yeah. um, if you do that, that's grand. It's grand and it's wondrous. Mm. But wow. we we don't really see it that way often enough. Yeah, that's so good. Well, in our last uh, 30 seconds or so, uh, Trump's out of power. He's losing influence in his own party. Is white Christian nationalism also on the way out? Do we have, Can we forget this and move on with our lives, or do we still need to be concerned? I've taken a pickleball. I don't even think about it anymore. No. Um, <laughs> oh, well, I too. Say, yeah, I would say um, there's a shrinking number of folks uh, – who are part of these kinds of churches. It's a graying community. They're having a hard time holding on to young people. As they shrink, they get more vociferous, more aggressive. That's number one. Number two, uh, white Christian nationalism is a story that is also winning 
in other places. So Trump is one metric. Uh, Ron DeSantis is another, and uh, he's doing great. He got 70% of the vote and is basically more conservative. He's rightward of Trump on vaccines and on education and on immigration. Um, so uh, my take would be that if, if, if you do read the book and you do take a look at the history I'm into, this is not a movement that takes a setback in the 2022 midterms and says, well, we tried, might as well just get brunch and do something else now. <laughs> um, so I, I don't I, I don't think it's out of our lives. And I, I say that because I'm somebody who continues to be really worried about American democracy. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you. Sometimes loss motivates movements more than winning. And uh, it's something we see on a regular basis. Well, uh, we, we get comments, uh, you know, people across our platforms where we're doing this live, and I'm sure the same thing will happen. Uh, when people listen just to the podcast or watch this later. But Jim Eaton said he just ordered the book, Preparing for War, The Extremist History of White Christian Nationalism and What Comes Next. Uh, thanks, Jim. Brad, Brad, thank you for, uh, th thanks for being uh, a part of this, for all the work you do and for breaking away yet another hour to talk on a podcast oh, no. in your no. in your <laughs> cold shed. Very, <laughs> very excited and really appreciate you having me on and, and thanks for all the work you're doing. Absolutely. Yeah. Thanks so much. Hey, thanks, man. We'll see you. Bye, everybody.